0: unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible-carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, we're back, coming at you from Wacoco, Texas, and Gramercy Park, Manhattan. The mean streets of Gramercy Park. We're talking to you today as we get kind of ever deeper into summer, uh late june here folks uh so if you are still preaching and uh uh and you haven't yet gone on vacation we're gonna help you out if you're the associate the curate the intern getting ready to preach and you're terrified because the rector's going on vacation we're gonna help you too so we're looking at second samuel uh and second corinthians and mark five so we're done with first samuel and now we're turning the corner into the second book about king david and Mm -hmm. all that and and uh we'll continue paul's correspondence with the church in corinth and jesus early in his ministry in the gospel of mark so Mm -hmm. uh jake you doing
1: okay i'm doing well i was just thinking about you know we're talking about the mean streets of gramercy park do you remember uh uh the gramercy griffs i think they were the largest uh gang in um in uh, The Warriors. Story. No, The Warriors. Yeah. Do you remember Warriors? The Gramercy Gifts? No, yeah, what so the, the heck are you talking about? The Gramercy Riffs. that movie, though The Warriors. Warriors, come out and play. Anyway, if you haven't seen The Warriors, everybody, that's a great summertime
0: movie. I have no idea what
1: you're talking about. Ah, it's so good.
0: <laughs> okay. Anyway. Well, Jake, this is one of the many ways. As iron sharpens iron, you lead me into new uh, areas of media to explore. Um... I'm excited about this. I'll have to look at... What were the, were the Gramercy... This is all fictional, I presume. Yeah, the, the Riffs. They were not, the most powerful okay. gang
1: in all of New York City from Gramercy Park. And that movie, The Warriors, which is like a fictional movie, takes place in eight, the 80s about the the Warriors. And they got to get across the New York City from the Bronx to their place in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, anyway, anyway,
0: take it give it a watch it's great it's it's high entertainment so it's, it it's high sounds art. like uh grammar c used to not be quite as uh hoity-toity as it is now
1: no no it's always been hoity-toity this is just like a total playoff of it
0: so uh, okay yeah got it all right well let's uh our, our listeners are like come on guys get to the, get to the program i'm doing fine thanks for asking let's <laughs> move on okay uh so second samuel um This continues the story of King David, and here he is mourning the death of King Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, Mm. who was David's BFF, Uh, and there's a whole, I mean, it's a rich story. The relationship with Saul that got really conflicted and difficult, Saul suffered from pretty severe mental illness and towards the end of his life, and delusions of grandeur and feeling like he was being persecuted all the time, Uh, always kind of of had a paranoia thing going on, and Jonathan and David try to kind of hold the kingdom together, and anyways, they both get killed in this battle, and David now is going to be king for reals, but he does something really beautiful and compassionate here, which is instead of being like, yes, like Simba, I can't wait to be king, Uh, he instead takes time to grieve and mourn. And David, as someone who is an Old Testament uh, figure who points us to Christ, does something here which we see also in Christ, which is to weep and to mourn and to show compassion and to not be afraid of emotion. And there's so many parts of American life, especially American life for men, that encourages you to not show emotion and to stuff it deep down and whatever but uh that's not who king david is and that's not what christianity is about it's about being honest and open and real about pain and uh and that's what king david does here is he laments the death of saul who actually saul was pretty terrible to david Mm -hmm. at a lot of points in saul's life and yet david still recognizes that he was somebody who was used in god's plan and anointed by god and all that so anything else you would say about this passage in second sam no i mean that's exactly right i mean and it's
1: important to remember that you know saul and jonathan don't um die pleasant deaths i mean they die (laughs) on the battlefield it's brutal
0: and And um, you can go to Beth Shan today in israel (laughs) and that's where it's a nice roman ruin but back in those days King Saul's body was hung on the wall. I mean, it's pretty awful.
1: Yeah, but I think, you know, especially the opening part of 2 Samuel here, um, Samuel is being uh, portrayed as a type, um, uh, a a good and humble king who uh, prays and and laments over the death not only of his friend, but also his enemy, who was so his friend being Jonathan. But um, Saul, and this points us to uh, a greater king who... um, um, who is so humble that he takes our place so that you and I won't have to ultimately die, but raises again. And so, um, indeed, so, uh, I mean, if you're going to preach on that, I mean, this is a beautiful poem, and I think there's a lot of things to talk about, but ultimately this points to the greater king who dies not only for his friends, but uh, Jesus, who dies not only for his friends,
0: but his enemies as well. Amen. Uh, And so we move now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which we skip chapter 7, which bums me out. Because, Mm -hmm. again, the context here is a really jacked up relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, um, that church that he started. Uh, But then the Corinthians uh, were just, I mean, man, they had all kinds of issues. And so Paul had to write some pretty stern letters because they were violating safe church policies left and right. And, uh, and it's, it's just not good to have exploitative, manipulative relationships or theology in a church. So Paul was trying to bring them back to the truth, get them away from their false teachers, the super apostles. And um, so he'd written some harsh things. He didn't like having to write harsh things, but it seems to have worked. And chapter 7 was all about his joy at kind of how they took to heart the things that he said and they repented. And he's, he says, you know, I'm really sad that I had to speak... Uh, kind of strongly to you, but I'm so glad that it all worked out and that everything's been restored. So it's this beautiful thing, and that provides the foundation for what we then get in 2 Corinthians 8, which is uh, Paul asking for money. Uh, the The gospel is not a pie in the sky, you know, just about feeling good. Uh, it does have real-world implications, and part of that affects our money and how we use it and where we use it, and, and so Paul... Throughout much of his ministry, was collecting financial resources for the church in Jerusalem, and so he's uh, he's talked to the Corinthians about this before. He's talked to all the churches, and in, in most of his letters in the New Testament, he's either asking them for money or thanking them for money that they've already given um, for the Jerusalem church. And, and here he's asking for uh, them to kind of follow through with the pledge that they've uh, they've made in the past. You know? Uh, so yeah, he says that you know you began it last year, but now time to complete your your pledge. So anything you would, uh, Jay, can you relate to that at all as a um, as a you know I really
1: I really resonate with St. Paul in chapter eight here, always asking for money and having to ask for money, and um, um, especially in the fall, and um, which is always just right around the corner. But I think one it's of coming the, up, hey, people. One of the, yeah, so get your pledge in already. But uh, one of the things that you know really sticks out is that that Paul was raising money for. Um, for uh, the church in Jerusalem, in part because, uh, you know, the church in Jerusalem desperately needed it. This was a persecuted church. But what Paul, especially as an apostle to the Gentiles, was trying to convey in the asking of this money, it wasn't just like a, hey, a good deed, but he's trying to demonstrate uh, not only to the Jewish Christians, but also to the Gentile Christians that we're now one and so what's good for the goose is good for the gander and uh you know so we are all one and for the mutual prospering of our ministries and for the mutual prospering of this body we um, have all things in common and so really in that um that act of giving to the church of jerusalem these gentiles uh, it's not just a good deed. This isn't about winning brownie points. This is demonstrating that we are one community for the sake of the proclamation of this message. Because you're absolutely right. Um, we um, This is a heavenly message, and God can do what he, he wills. But he chooses to work through his people for its proclamation.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's really, I think, kind of wonderful that Paul does talk about money in his... Uh writing because it is such a big part of our lives it's where a lot of our emotional energy goes a lot of our mental energy goes and people that resent churches that talk about money i always want to say um maybe you want to examine that a little bit because if your relationship with your money is so intense that you get mad when god wants to talk about it maybe you don't have a healthy relationship with your money maybe you've made the mistake of thinking that it actually belongs to you Mm uh and so this is why paul is kind of wading into this and he's he's he goes to great pains and his language gets a little awkward um because he sort of says you know i could command you just to give this money but i don't want to do that because i want it to come out of the right uh, motivation uh motivation is really important heart is really important always in christianity why are you giving and where is it coming mm. from emotionally so he says look I, I I want you to excel in this in your generosity not as a command but out of genuine love um, and he says I want you to desire to do it not do it just because I'm making you to do it like this is true in human relationships you want your significant other to take you to dinner because he or she loves you not because they have to um, and he also says look you have significant means he says finish doing what you started um, and so, your eagerness may be matched by completing your pledge according to your means. Mm-hmm. Corinth is a big, rich town, and the Corinthian church probably has significant resources to give. And he says, I want to do this um, again, not because you have to, but just because that seems, you know, this is what stewardship looks like. Yep. You have, if you have been given these means, uh, there should be a, an equal kind of um, uh, response in your mm-hmm. generosity to others. So, uh, it's a very kind of just nitty gritty, real world, down to earth thing. We got to support the church. We're all in this together, and if you have been uh, blessed with significant resources, then you should give accordingly.
1: Amen. So we come so, then to there you go. yeah, it's good. Um, Preach on
0: that. Ask for money in the summer. Do it. See what <laughs> happens. Anyways.
1: Um, uh, then we come to Mark chapter five verses twenty one through forty three, and this is a really, really interesting passage because you have Jesus. And uh, once again, Mark makes the point that they're by the sea. And um, one of the leaders of the synagogue, this guy named Jairus, comes in. It's basically like, hey, my daughter's at the point of death. Uh, Come save her. And so Jesus is like, great. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't jump in like the ambulance. Or anything and this really ties into the reading from last week almost where the disciples were at sea and they're hit by this major storm and they're completely panicked and like god why aren't you doing anything you know once again here we see jesus you know he's not in the back of the boat taking a nap but he's not running for any bells
0: he's taking his sweet time yeah. is what he's doing if he were a pizza delivery guy it would be free every time because he would it wouldn't be there in 30 yeah. minutes or less
1: and uh, and then so they get to this place and uh You know, they're on the way, and all of a sudden we see this lady who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Hold on to that. She has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and nobody can do anything about it. And uh, one of the things that I love about this is that she reaches out and she touches his cloak, and she's instantly healed. Now, I always think that this is interesting, um, and this is something I would hit on, is that Jesus could have kept cruising by. He could have been like, all right, man, but he feels power leave his body. And he's like, who touched me? And I'm always like, you know, why does Jesus do that? Why does he like, you know, and I can imagine that woman going like, oh, crap. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, did I do something wrong? Do I owe him money or something like that? But uh, the woman, you know, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before it. Like, gee, I'm so sorry. And what does he do? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Like, so he could have just kept moving, but he doesn't. He wants to make himself known to her. And that is, that's like a really powerful teaching right there. That Jesus isn't some sort of like abstract savior. You know what I mean? He's not some giant sky fairy. Uh, The Jesus who saves you, the Jesus who heals you, the Jesus who meets you in your hemorrhage. Um... Uh, the jesus who meets you while everyone else is like hey hurry up I've got more pressing things um, yeah. is very someone very very specific very very specific and he's always making himself known
0: yeah and the the again there's a couple things to note this is a this story is a sandwich story meaning there's like the bread, and then the meat, and then we come back to the bread. It's like the story of this woman who's hemorrhaging. The bleeding woman is sandwiched between. It's some real nice literary craft by Mark, and he does it intentionally because, as Jake said, he wants to tie these together, and we'll come back to that in a second. But this woman who has been bleeding uh, again. This is um, menstrual bleed, or not really menstrual bleeding, but it's some sort of uh, problem. Uh, it's not good. She's, it's not good and it would it's a fit maybe a fistula or something like that and it's something that would have made her literally an untouchable in you know to have a flow of blood even your monthly menstrual bleeding would make you unclean and you'd have to go through a monthly rite uh, you can read about this in leviticus and so the fact that she's been bleeding for 12 years means that she would not have been ceremonially clean at any point and she would not have been able to participate in the religious or cultural life of her town she would have been and just in the hygiene situation then this in plumbing and bidet she would have been really uh just marginalized uh and cut off from people and she spent all her money to try to get healed and nothing so she's she's really at the end of her rope and that's another thing you have here you have both Jairus and this woman at the end of the rope. They're both at a point of desperation and they're coming to Jesus. And that's often where we mm. tend to meet God. And she touches his cloak um, and uh, and she's immediately healed. And uh, and the other thing too, you know, and just to kind of piggyback on what you said, Jake, about what this reveals about Jesus is that this part where we hear that she told him the whole truth, what that means is he took the time to hear her entire story. Uh, This is how we know what the ailment was, bleeding. This is how we know how long it lasted, 12 years. This is how we know she spent all of her money. All the details that Mark provides... Again Mark would have heard this from Saint Peter. Church tradition holds that Mark was sort of the assistant for Peter, and so Peter would have told the story to Mark and Mark wrote it down. And how did Peter know all this stuff, the details? Cuz again, like we know the woman just came up behind Jesus, didn't say anything, touched him and was healed. The reason that we know any of this is because Jesus then stopped everything, took the time to listen to her story. The apostles heard it and ultimately it was written down here for us to to know. So, um uh, this is the, this is the, this is the thing. And by the way, coming back again to my point that our faith is not some magical lever that makes God do our bidding. Um, when he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Um, uh, this woman's, the emphasis again is not on this woman's faith, but on Jesus's power. Um, the, the, don't make this about you. This is about mm-hmm. what God can do. Because again, while the woman does clearly have faith, we know from plenty of stories that Jesus heals lots of people who don't have faith. Um, her faith is a timid faith. She doesn't approach Jesus head on. She doesn't ask him for healing. She sneaks up behind him and grabs a tiny little piece of his cloak. Um, so uh, this is, this again, this is mustard seed faith. Uh, so, anyways, the the emphasis here: Jesus cares for you. He mm. wants to know your whole truth. He wants to know your whole story. Uh, this is the compassionate, good shepherd that He is. So, that's
1: right. Well, and then and then you begin to see, though, this very thing: this this faith that that has been given to her, that has made her well and healed her of her disease. It's now uh, wavering in Jairus. And how many times have we like, oh, you looked over and you saw something work for someone else and something else hasn't worked for you. And you're like, oh, well, Jesus must not, you know, what, you know, what's this, this faith that caused him to approach to ask him to come heal his daughter is now wavering. And Jesus needs to speak to him once again. Yeah. Do not fear, only believe, you know, the, the same, you know, he speaks to him. And so um, because this girl has died, you know, and uh, and this is a very powerful thing. I mean, when your plans don't work out, Christ is still still present and uh, still coming. And he comes into this chaotic, chaotic scene Um Uh, where, you know, and he's like, literally, uh, why do you make such commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now she is dead, but why would Jesus say this? Well, Jesus says this because in him, death is not forever. Death is not forever. This is just simply, and then so, but, you know, when we talk, even when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, when we make that proclamation, it sounds Mm -hmm. foolish to the world's ears. And of course they laugh. Um, so, But he goes ahead and he, 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 he goes on in there and he, he, uh, he pushes everybody out and he tells this little girl, kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and they began to walk about. And there's this interesting detail that Mark throws in there. She was 12 years of age. I mean, this is amazing, and they're all overcome by amazement because dead people don't rise from the dead. Um, and uh, he strictly orders no no one to tell about this, and, but to give her something to eat. Now, the reason why I think there's this interesting connection of 12 years of age and 12 years of hemorrhaging, because as long as this girl had been alive, this woman had been suffering, and this girl dies. And so you have in these two uh, daughters of Israel a picture of what life in Jesus actually is all about Um, we get a picture of what the Christian faith is all about and that is in Jesus in the midst of suffering in the midst of all of this chaos he is in complete control and he is providing perfect healing and life everlasting Uh, this is what he gives you and I in his body and blood uh, and this in the midst of our wavering faith uh, we can hear Jesus' words speak to us as well. Uh, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jarius, uh, do not fear. Aaron, yep. do not fear. Only believe. And this is the good news because in Christ we have both total healing. We're yeah, made and whole. The, and we have the, life the everlasting.
0: bleeding which began um, 12 years ago and ultimately brought this woman to Jesus uh, at that same time that her bleeding began this girl was born and her illness and death would bring her to Jesus uh, the other thing that's going on here that's so amazing is just that this is another example of Jesus's ministry to women who would have been sort of devalued in that society and especially children mm-hmm. um, and here he is giving them great honor and bringing his ministry to them um, and I think the the um, thing that's uh, the other thing you can talk about here is just um, how long both these uh, situations, um, how, how much waiting people had to do. So obviously the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, that's 12 years of mm-hmm. waiting with incredible pain and difficulty uh, and emotional and social cost to her. And think also about Jairus there standing watching jesus have this really long conversation with the woman that he's just healed while they're on the way hopefully to heal his daughter who is at death's door and how frustrating uh and excruciating it must have been for jairus to wait knowing his daughter is near death and jesus is just chatting with this lady forever and ever and ever uh and um And just what that is like, (laughs) waiting for God to hear your prayers. And in both situations, obviously, Jesus responds and answers. But the waiting is real. And as Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. Um, And so, sometimes we're in that situation. I think the final thing here, the final point that you could make is just about touch. Um, Touching unclean or dead people was something that made you unclean in um, the thinking based on the book of Leviticus. And so, if Jesus here is touched by this unclean woman, she would have made him unclean and his garment would have to be washed and he would have to go through rites of purification. Uh, same as when he touches the dead girl, touching a dead body would make you unclean. Uh, but in both these situations, Jesus being the righteousness of God, the light of God, the 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 Son of God. Uh, his presence and power you can't make him dirty by touching him you can't make him unclean by touching him he always makes you clean and so to you uh jesus comes um and brings his healing and cleansing touch um to you into your life and uh that's that's uh, so there's a lot you can preach on in this passage uh, wh- whichever direction you want to go uh it's just a rich rich text and shows god's mercy for people who are feeling unclean, people who are feeling sick, people who are stuck, people who are waiting, uh, people who are isolated and alone. I mean, he's this is, this is why Jesus is so captivating uh, still after so many, so many years.
1: I think that's a great place to stop.
0: Well, let's stop then. And uh, we'll see you next week as we continue uh, <laughs> through these uh, readings. Uh, next week, of course, is uh, going to be Fourth of July, that Sunday, and uh, Fourth of July. in which people may or may not come to church, and, uh, and the we'll holiest tell you, day in American Christianity. Uh, we'll tell you what <laughs> hymns not to use. Uh, all right, so we'll see you next week, and uh, happy, uh, happy preaching. Amen.